And we are in a series we're calling Endless Summer, and, and I've been really excited to share this message. I don't, it, it, uh, God, you know, it's been working it inside of me, I feel like, for a long time, and I haven't had the right moment to share it, but I feel like today is the day for that. John chapter 6, we're just going to be reading um, just a few verses there. From, uh, we're going to start in verse 1, but just a little bit about this particular story. It's pretty familiar probably for a lot of people, but for some maybe not. But this, this was the miracle known as the loaves and fishes, where Jesus took fishes, uh, the loaves and fish, right? If it's King James Version, it says fishes. Uh, but anyways, Jesus took a little boy's lunch, and he fed a lot of people. We know 5,000 men, uh, probably more like 20,000 people. Now, this must have been a really impactful miracle because every single gospel writer has their version of this one miracle. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell this story of this, of this event that we're going to read today. And, and so there, there's a few things in this that I, I just want to draw out, really just three things in this story. And, and just before we read it, the book of John, again, it's really the only book I feel like I'm somewhat familiar with because I thought the book of John or the gospel of John was the whole Bible for about a year when I first became a Christian. Somebody gave me a surfer's Bible and it was the gospel of John and I thought that was the whole book, the whole Bible. And so I read it over and over and over and so that's the one book I feel like I'm kind of okay with. But uh, the best that I could tell, there's seven miracles in the gospel of John apart from the resurrection and, um, and the Immaculate Conception, seven distinct miracles. And they all kind of build on each other. And this one is, is right in the middle. So this is like miracle number four in the Gospel of John. There's a few miracles only in the Gospel of John. This is not one of them. But this is right in the heart. And, and, and before we read this, John, he ends his Gospel with a, with a verse, I'm just going to read it to you, verse 20, uh, John 21, verse 25. And he says that if there's so many things that Jesus did, if every one of them was written down, the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so every, every miracle that made it into the Gospels were, was intentional. God wanted us to know what went down and what happened and how that miracle took place. And so we're going to read this, just a few verses, John chapter 6. It says that sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up, and he saw a great crowd coming towards him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. Look at your neighbor and say, it's just a test. It's just a test. He asked them only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, eight months wages. I could work, we could work a whole year, Jesus and not buy enough bread for each one of these folks to have one bite. Andrew speaks up, another disciple. He says, well, uh, there's a boy here with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down 
There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 men. Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks. He distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. So this wasn't just a snack. They were, it's a buffet, all right? He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather up the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 basketfuls with the leftovers by those who had eaten. All right. And, if, and the people of God said, amen. amen. So this is a pretty, pretty cool miracle here. And before we jump in, I just, you know, I want to see by the show of hands, how many of you believe that, that God still works miracles? Okay. All right. Cool. And it's okay if you don't. You know, I, I have some friends that, that don't believe. They're, they're, they're what you would call cessationalists, and they're uh, by-the-book kind of folks. They, they think the miracles stopped with Jesus and the disciples. Um, and so I'm not here really to argue that, but I wanted to see how many people believed in miracles still. Albert Einstein, probably one of the smartest dudes that's lived in the last, I don't know, thousand years or so, he had this saying that either everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. And that's the way that he lived. And I, I want to believe, and I do believe, that, that God still works miracles. That, that there's things that God wants to do through our lives that cannot be accomplished through, through human means, through what we have. That's a miracle. It's supernatural. It's where God takes just this natural world and he invades it and does something special and, and so incredible that all the world take, takes notice. They know that God, God showed up in this place. And miracles, if you believe that God still works miracles, you believe that miracles are more than just historical facts that happened a couple thousand years ago. This particular miracle was recorded, you know, it's several thousand years old now. But, but I, I, what I want to kind of look at this morning is this thought that, that maybe the way that God performed miracles 2,000 years ago is the same way that he does it today. That, that it's more than just a story or a historical event that, 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 that the disciples put in the Bible, but it was more of a, of a microcosm, a microcosm. It's a small example of what God wants to do on a big scale. Uh, so that's a microcosm. A microcosm, I had to look it up. I didn't know what it was. It's a big word. I got it out of a book. <laughs> okay, that, that a microcosm could be as, as, as a, in a small scale as, a, as the family unit goes within a country. That's the way the city goes. That's the way the state goes. And that's the way the whole country goes. So when you zoom in really small, you get a, a, a picture of what's happening on a large scale. Or you show up at your kid's baseball game, and you can say the first game was a microcosm of the rest of the season. That they played really good, and that's how the whole season went. Well, I think miracles are that way. That, that the way that God performed miracles 2,000 years ago, if we can zoom in and look at the details, it's the same way that he's doing it in 2023. That if we, as, as the people of God, do what the disciples did, God will do what he does. And in this miracle, there was, there, it wasn't, now, Jesus, I'm sure, could have just said, all right, um, you know, Peter, go down to the Sea of Galilee, you're going to catch a fish, and you're going to pull out enough money to go buy all these folks food. Or he probably could have just whipped it up. You know, like the first, the first miracle was, was uh, they ran out of wine at a wedding. That's a problem, you know what I'm saying? That's a, that, you know, it wasn't like a life or death problem, but it was a problem. 
And so the, his, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, and the people there had to participate in the miracle. They had to fill up the jars. Remember his mom, Jesus' mom said, I don't know what to do, but just do whatever he tells you to do. And, and the miracle took place. And so they had to participate in the miracle. They had something to do that, that was the catalyst for what began to happen. And in the book of John, the, the three miracles that happened before this one, they have one thing in common. They ran out of something. They didn't have enough resources. With the, with the, the wedding, they ran out of wine, right? Um, with, with there was a nobleman's son, they ran out of time. He was about to die and he got to Jesus. He said, my son is dying right now. Can you just speak the word? They ran out of time. And, and, and the pool of Bethesda is the third miracle. He, there was a guy that was laying there and he had nobody to help him. He ran out of help. He couldn't get to the pool and, and he needed to get to the pool. And so, and so here again is another miracle that set up with a disadvantage. They didn't know what to do. Jesus told the disciples, we're going to feed these folks. And the disciples, the first person that steps onto the scene is, is Philip. Philip is, is, he must have been a, I don't know if he was an accountant or I don't, I don't know, but he starts doing the math. You know, Jesus says, we're going to feed these people. We're not going to send them away. The first idea was, let's just send them away. And again, so we've got 5,000 men. Most scholars believe there was like 20,000 people. 20,000 people. Could you imagine trying to feed 20,000 people? That's insane. So you got 20,000 hungry people. And, and, and if, if they're like me, they get hangry. You know what I mean? Like, like here they are following Jesus out in, into this deserted place, and they're hungry. Philip does the math. Philip says, Jesus, we could take up an offering, but it's going to take about a year's wages just for everybody to get a bite. So he's focusing on the problem. He's focusing on what they don't have. He's focusing on the facts, which is good to do, right? Sometimes you have to do that. You got to get a good picture of what's going on. And so he focuses in on the problem. But the first thing that, that I, I think is special about this miracle is that Jesus made that problem their problem. The disciples could have taken care of themselves. Uh, they wanted to send everybody away. They're like, okay, Jesus, you just fed them spiritually, right? He, 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 he was there teaching them, and it said that as the day kind of sun was setting, they were hungry. The disciples were like, just send them on, Jesus. You gave them what they needed, right? That's what you came to do. But Jesus said, no. Remember, he, he said, I'm, he asked the disciples, how are we going to feed these people? So immediately, what was their problem now became the disciples' problem. And I'm finding that, it, that there's some things in life that God will call you and ask you to do where he asks you to take care of other people's problems when maybe you shouldn't care at all. I think a great example is what we've just seen, a skate park. How many of you in here skate? Probably none of y'all, right? Maybe 10%? Right? I mean, I'm serious. I don't skate anymore. If you've seen me skate, you'd laugh. I skate, when I go to the skate park, I go really early when there's nobody there. And, you know, and if I see anybody I know, I'm like, I'll come back later. <laughs> you know? Now, when I was a kid, now, if I, when I was a kid, I, I, I skated a lot. But what does a skate park have to do with anything? Well, what does feeding these folks have to do with anything? Because I think Jesus came to do more than meet the spiritual needs of people, that the gospel is holistic when it's fully functioning. Not only does it feed people spiritually, it takes care of their practical needs as well. 
What are we to do as a church? We're to preach the gospel. We're to teach people the Bible. But also, there's practical needs within our community that God has called us to take care of. The disciples were thinking with, with kind of tunnel vision. They were thinking, we're just here to, to, to give people theology. We're here to, to teach the Bible, to teach the words of Jesus. But Jesus flipped it around and he made it their problem. And so the first step in this miracle that takes place is when the disciples take this on as something that they want to take care of. And I think the, the best way to say it is what's important to God should be important to me. And up to that point, the disciples could probably care less about how these folks were going to get fed. They thought they did their job, and it was time to clock out and go home. Actually, they were there to get, to get away from the crowd. Mark's gospel says that they got in a boat, and they were just trying to get away from all the people. And the people followed them to Bethsaida. And so when they, when they showed up at their retreat, there was 20,000 people waiting on them. And Jesus, in perfect Jesus style, he gets out, goes up on a mountain, teaches them, and then he gives the disciples, he says, hey, here's a problem, and I want you to answer this problem. I want you to take care of this. I want you to, to figure this out. And so Philip starts doing the math. Philip's thinking, well, maybe we can go to the world and they can fix it. Maybe we can go to town and get enough money to buy enough food for all these people. You know, he's, he's thinking the way that, that the only way that he's thought up to this point there was really no historical context for this miracle to this point. No, no, no bread had been multiplied. No fish had been multiplied. They'd seen miracles. They'd seen water to wine. But they hadn't seen five pieces of bread and two fish feed 20,000 people. They had no context for it. So Philip's idea got put to the side. Andrew steps up, another disciple. And he says, well, um, Jesus... There's this young boy, 20,000 people, and just a young kid decided, is the only one that decided to bring a lunch. He had a good mama. Come on, somebody, right? Mama packed that boy a brown sack lunch, and, and, and he was prepared. Okay, now here's, I think, the second real aspect of this miracle. Have you ever tried to take food from a kid? I mean, seriously. I have been punched taking snacks from my kid. I mean, like literally, she's seven years old. You try to take food from a child, and it's not even right to do. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like you would think that there's 20,000 people and nobody has food. The first, the first people to get fed should be the kids. But here's Andrew, and somehow he found this little boy, and he says, hey, there's a sack lunch here. That's a miracle, the fact that this little kid, this, this child was willing to give his lunch up for the greater good. Think about that. The disciples could have went home with Jesus. Hey, we, got plenty, we can take care of ourselves. Who cares about the 20,000? The little boy could have done the same exact thing. I just heard Jesus, the, 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 ser the sermon's over, the service is over. I'm going home with my lunch. Peace. I came across this. It's called child property laws. I wanted to share. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm, do if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. 
what a miracle. So, apparently, so, so, so God was up to something here. But this is the big part. They all had to give up something for this miracle to happen. And it was all to serve somebody besides themselves. The young boy, who we know, obviously, he had to give up his little, his, his sack lunch. I don't know if he did it willfully. I mean, just think about that. What's the chances of a, of a little kid getting to Jesus in a crowd of 20,000 people? I mean, it's a civic center. It's bigger than the civic center. I mean, it's huge. But what about Philip and Andrew? That's who I really want to talk about. Philip and Andrew both had plans. They, 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 they knew how big the problem was, but they didn't have any solutions. Not only did they know that there was a problem, they also had access to Jesus, and this little kid didn't. So they have the platform, they know about the problem, but they don't have the goods. Do you see where this is going? That in order for this, to mir- for this miracle to happen, for these 20,000 people to be fed, Philip had to give up his idea. Think about that for a second. Philip's been following Jesus for a while. He's got the credentials. He's got the access to Jesus. He knows Jesus. He's in the club. He founded the church. His name's on a plaque. But there's a problem and they don't know how to solve it. And so what we're seeing here is you've got two generations that need each other because there's a hungry world that needs to be fed and nobody can do it on their own. And so the little boy had to surrender his lunch, but Philip and Andrew had to surrender their ego. They had to admit that this little boy right here and his lunch is the key to this miracle and this thing continuing to move forward. And if they couldn't recognize it, they would have sat in the desert hungry. And there's a lot of people that are doing that. Now, this isn't just church. We could talk about this all day with church, but this is companies. This is, this is things big. I mean, any organizations, this is countries, where you see generations that can't come together and bring what they have for the good of the whole. And the thing about this miracle that's so special is in order for God to bless, for Jesus to bless what they had, they had to surrender it to him. And I think that's the key here. It's not, we're not sacrificing anything here we're not, because they all got it back. But what I'm willing to surrender to, to God, God is willing to supernaturally bless. That, that miracles begin to take place in my life, in our life. When I sur- the more I surrender to God, the more that he begins to supernaturally provide in my life. Because God can't bless anything that I'm not willing to give him. And it's a hard thing to take a lunch from a seven-year-old. And it's a hard thing to get somebody who's established in their ways and says, this is how we've always done it. And I'm doing the numbers and I got the facts here and this isn't gonna work. Both sides had to surrender. And when they got, when, when the disciples said, okay, I'm willing to give up my ideas for the best idea, that's the real key, I think, was Philip had a good idea. I mean, that could have worked. Andrew had a good idea. I mean, he, he, he brought the, the little boy to the table, 
But am I willing to come to a table and, and, and everybody puts our ideas there and go with the best idea if it's not mine? I'm preaching now, y'all. I'll tell you, I'm about to leave for a few weeks. So I, I figure, <laughs> am I, can I do that? Can you do that? As the head of your organization, can you put a team around you that's younger than you? And when the good ideas come on the table that aren't your idea, can you go with that idea? Can you disagree and commit? Because that's how we move forward. That's how anything moves forward. That's how the church moves forward. That's how this miracle took place. But that's, I think we're seeing a big vacuum in our, in our country right now because we're missing people at the table. And I don't even want to give you the statistics of the age group of Congress right now, of the generational gap that's there, but we need young people in leadership because they have the goods. They have the sack lunch, right? They have the bread and the fish, and we can sit out here and we can do math all day long, but until we're willing to take ideas that are ours and put people in positions of leadership that maybe we've disqualified because of how old they are, Jesus is just waiting. He knew it. He, and this is the cool thing about this miracles because he knew exactly how it was going to happen. But both sides had to surrender something. And really what I felt like that God wanted me to share today out of this miracle, which I think is what God wants to do right now, not only in our church, but in our community and in our country, is he wants to bring generations together. That's the heart of God. And if I feel like I've ever heard a word from the Lord, it's if, if, if we can't work together generationally, right? It, because both sides have value that they bring and both sides are necessary. But if, if we're not willing to surrender what we have, if we're not willing to give the good ideas, if we're not willing to listen, Philip and Andrew, if we're not willing to, to let a young person lead when maybe, maybe I'm capable of doing it better than them, but I want to give them the experience. That's what's happening here. Think about the conversation when that young boy went home to his parents. Think about his life and what happened. For the, I mean, he had a story to tell for the rest of his life, right? He showed up to a crowd in a desert with a little lunch and somehow got to Jesus, the Son of God, because the disciples noticed him. It's beautiful. And when generations come together, and I believe that's a big part of why God has, has blessed Upper Room, because we have incredible leaders here that, that of, of, from every generation. But what my heart really is, is what I want to see is I want to see the generations younger than me stepping up into leadership, doing what God's called them to, bringing, bringing their, what they have, what God has given them to the table because it's, it's, it's where the miracles begin to take place. And so that's the last thing I got. Y'all come up here and play this piano. We're laying in the plane, y'all. <laughs> I'm going to read one more verse to you. Miracles take place where there's generational unity. When generations come together, this is in church, this is in a community, this is in a city, this is in a country. When you can, and, and, and it's not, unity doesn't mean we all have to agree. That's not what that means. Unity means that, that we've created a space where we can disagree and still commit to the best idea. 
Thank you. I got one. <laughs> Thank you. Like, like, even if it's not mine, right? I know that this wasn't my idea, but this is a better idea. I know, Philip, that we could probably take up an offering and go to town and buy, you know, $50,000 worth of food and bring it back. But that here's this little, little guy here. Maybe we should try something new. Maybe there's a better way to do it. I know this is the way that we've done it for a long time, but, but maybe there's a better, a better way to do it. Psalm 133, it's a psalm of unity. It says, how wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. It, it's like costly anointing oil flowing down the head and the beard, flowing down Aaron's beard, flowing down the collar of his priestly robes, it's like the dew on Mount Hermon flowing down the slopes of Zion. Listen to this last line. Where generations come together, that's where God commands the blessing. And he ordains eternal life. How many of you want a blessing in your business? How many of you want a blessing in your home, in your community, in your city? This is the way that we do it. It's when we're willing to come together and lay down our ego and lay down our ideas at the feet of Jesus and say, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, Lord? That's what I want to do. If you would just bow your head, we're going to pray together. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your faithfulness in our life because nobody's done this perfectly. Everybody in here has a story. Everybody in here has maybe been taken advantage of at some point. Maybe you did invest in someone that was younger and they squandered it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a young person and you've tried to bring your ideas and you've tried to contribute and you just feel like you don't have a voice. I want to ask you to try again. Because I believe something special happens when we come together in this spirit of unity, when we come together and we say, Lord, I just want to do what you're telling me to do. What's important to you, I want it to be important to me. If you want me to give up my lunch, I'll give it up. If you want me to give up my version of how this should happen, I know that I've got all the ideas and the resources and, 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 and this is the way we've done things to this point, but I'm willing to commit to another idea if it's, if it's a God idea. Lord, help us to, to grow together in unity. Help us to grow together as a church where the father's hearts are directed towards their children and the children's hearts are turned towards their parents, that there's perfect, there's unity in the home. There's unity within families. There's, there's unity within our communities and our groups that, that they, they know us because of the love that we have for each other not how we do church or where we do church or the style of church, but how we love each other and how we were willing to lay down our lives and our ideas for the generations that are coming behind us. Lord, let us be known as a church that cares, even about people that aren't here. And so, Lord, I just pray that, I pray for homes right now. If there's conflict between kids and parents, between brothers and sisters and mom. The, the devil is a liar. I just rebuke that. Lord, and I pray for healing right now within families and relationships. 
I pray for healing right now between sons and daughters and their parents, those that maybe have been separated for a long time. Lord, you can, you can do it. Lord, you can work them. This is the miracle. The miracle before the miracle was coming together. And so maybe this is the 4th of July where we're able to sit down and talk. Maybe this is the summer where we can pick up the phone and get that coffee. With, and we know we, we should have done it a long time ago. Lord, bring healing unity to your people. And we just give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen.